the first two or three that I saw were from the student section, and it was like night and day after having gone to a Vanderbilt game where everybody is just kind of like chatting and not really paying attention to what's going on to being in an environment where it's like completely full-on, full-throated sport the entire time. Hey everyone, I'm Tony Waller, and you are listening to episode 178 of the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. Today, I speak with Seth Wilson for our Spotlight series, where we interview celebrities, former athletes, and media personalities that have a Georgia football fandom. Seth is a Ringgold native, a UGA PhD grad, and a 12-time Jeopardy champion. We talk about his appearances on Jeopardy, growing up around Tennessee football fans, and his thoughts on the 2019 football season. Hey, what's up? This is Scott. As I was editing the podcast, I realized that there's a little bit of a transition when Tony is talking with Seth. Uh, I think Seth gets into his car and attaches via Bluetooth. So just a heads up, there's a lot of ambient noise and everything, but the context of what Tony and Seth talk about, I think will really fascinate you if you're a Georgia fan and if you're like me and seemingly everybody else in the world, you love Jeopardy. So without further ado, here's the Tony Waller and Seth Wilson interview. Today I'm joined by Seth Wilson, a Jeopardy champion and huge Georgia fan and friend of the pod. Seth, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited. A little bit of behind the scenes. We, since we teased this probably two months ago, Seth, Scott and I sat down for a conversation about two, two and a half months ago because I am worse at technology than Scott. I didn't even hit record the right way. Uh, but I now have updated our software, and I'm 100% recording. Unfortunately, Scott is busy with his day job, something I don't know. But, Seth, thank you for uh, <laughs> taking the time, man. So let's jump right in it. How did you become a Great. dog fan? I started um, – I was sort of like all throughout childhood and high school, just kind of a, like a general college football SEC fan. And then in 2007, my younger sister started at Georgia. So her freshman year was the first year – that Stafford and Moreno were playing together. And that was a great season with a couple of uh, minor setbacks. And so I started to take more of an interest in it then. Then in 2013, I started my PhD at Georgia. And it's really impossible to be on that campus without becoming a dogs fan. I had taken, um, been more and more closely following the team and, and especially in the 2012 season, you know, really got into it. And I wanted to go to the Georgia PhD program I went to for reasons other than football, but that was a really nice, like, kind of cherry on the Sunday. So that's how I got into it. Which program did you do at UGA? Uh, it's theater and performance studies. Yeah. So you're a native of Illinois and you went to U of I undergrad, right? No, no. I am, uh, I'm actually from North Georgia originally. Okay. I'm from Ringgold, okay. which is like the oh, last yeah. town. Um, yeah, yeah. It's like the last town before you cross into um, into, into Tennessee. So I, that's where I'm from originally. I did undergrad at Vanderbilt, and then I got my master's at U of I. Yeah, okay. I, I knew I knew there was a connection with the University of Illinois, and yeah, not to, I don't think you basically docked you. You live in Chicago now. Um, yeah. That's why I had in my head. So you, you were just generally a college football fan. You went to Vanderbilt, and we know their history of college football, but you were what years were you there? 03 to 07, so I was there, like, at peak Cutler. Yeah, about to say, you got to actually regretfully see a win over Georgia. You got to see two wins over Georgia during your time there, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, very, both very surprising. I, I didn't follow Vandy football that closely because, at least when I was there, nobody really did, and you know that it wasn't that big of a deal to go to the games. Um, we were usually a noon kickoff, and you know I went to a couple in my in my time there, but it's it's not that fun to go watch a team when you know they have a better than fifty percent chance of losing all their conference games, um, even with Cutler. So. Um, and my wife is a big Chicago Bears fan, so she does not care for Cutler all that much, even though I think you can make the case that, like, statistically, he's the best quarterback they've ever had. He's, he's still not terribly popular up here right now. So, Yeah, it's funny. I still have a ton of Bear fans from my time in Champaign, and um, I, uh, it's amazing how much of a punchline almost he has become um, among the Bears fans, even though statistically I get it I mean I do get it I mean he he is he has a he has a punchable face and you know one of the things that's really cool about meeting you for me when you came to our meet and greet a couple years ago or even when you were um you know when you were just started following us all on Twitter is I kind of knew who you were because I'm a huge Jeopardy fan um and obviously when someone with connections to UJ or or or, you know the Athens area or whatever does well in Jeopardy I pay attention to that Tell me about your start on Jeopardy. Yeah, I had tried a couple times to get on before I auditioned once for the college tournament, which is a little harder to get in because uh, than the regular show because there's only 15 spots. Um, so that was my first audition for it. Um, I had been uh, I had auditioned a couple of other times, um, and then spring of 2016, I got invited to audition. So you have to take they uh, they give twice a year, once or twice a year, they give an online test where there are 50 Jeopardy clues from a, a randomly selected range of categories. And if you get at least 35 of those right, you might be invited to audition in person. I took two days off from my classes that I was teaching and taking at uh, UGA and went up to Washington, D.C., where my sister was living at the time, and did the in-person audition and then kind of forgot about it. I felt like I did pretty well and... I said, you know, if I get invited to be on the show, great. Um, if not, I'll try again. You, you might be called any time within 18 months after doing an in-person audition. So um, I came back, kind of forgot about it, moved to Chicago, and then was on the subway one day and got a call from a number in Culver City, California. And I thought, I don't know anybody in Culver City. That's got to be a spam call. And as soon as I let it go to voicemail, I thought, wait a minute, that's for Jeopardy tape. So... They called me in June, and they said, we'd like you to come out a month from now in July. And so I started, I had been kind of studying here and there, but I really, like, kicked it into high gear then, started learning stuff that is not normally in my wheelhouse. I'm really good at history, literature, pop culture, music, TV, film. Um, Not so good at, like, science, math, geography. So I really started brushing up on that. And, you know, I went out and thought, if I get really lucky and I have a really good day, I might be able to win one or two games. And um, then it just kind of snowballed from there. And I was really not expecting it to go as well as it did for me. So uh, in, there are plenty of places to, to find out kind of exactly how this works. But taping-wise, you're basically held in a green room until it's your turn. And then they tape. I mean, how many episodes a day they tape? They tape five a day. You stay in one of the two hotels that they recommend. They send a bus to pick you up, or like a like a big van, a big, like twenty passenger van, and they pick you up about seven a.m. and you get to the studio about seven thirty. 
they send you in for makeup and for like to fill out all the paperwork that you have to do to be on the show to certify that you don't know anybody employed by Sony or by the show. And there's certain verification organizations that they use that you can't, um, you know, if you're employed by, I think, like the Oxford uh, Encyclopedia or if you're employed by um, Associated Press Photography, those are organizations that provide some of the answers and some of the material. And so you have to certify that you don't know anybody there. They bring in a third-party independent legal counsel to tell you about your rights as a game show contestant because after the quiz show scandals of the 60s, um, you know, if you remember, if you've ever seen Quiz Show with John Turturro, that it's oh, about yeah. that that period. Um, after all those uh, those games were found out to have been fixed, the Congress held several hearings to pass a bunch of laws. So you have the right to challenge any answer that you think might be right. You have the right to challenge somebody else's answer if you think it was wrong. Um, but you're supposed to bring it up, you know, like the next time that play stops. So they go over all of the kind of legalese stuff with you, and then then they start taping. You get a rehearsal, so you play through two full games, rotating contestants going up and getting the feel of the buzzer and seeing the clues on the board and just generally getting an idea, an idea of what the flow of the game will be like. One of the contestant coordinators hosts that game. Actually, now I think it's Jimmy from the Clue Crew who hosts it. But anyway, so you do the rehearsal, and then they start about 10.30, between 10.30 and 11, depending on how long the morning's activities have taken. They bring in the studio audience, and then you're randomly selected to go up and play. Um, I got picked to be in the first game my uh, my day, the first game of that they taped my day. It was me and uh, the returning champion and another player um, who had been had been there the day. Oh, wait, no, she was another new player. Um, but then they do five a day. So they do three, break for lunch, break for about 30, 45 minutes, everybody goes to lunch, and then they come back and do two more, and your day wraps up between 4.30 and 5. So it's a long day. It's a full day of work. That's uh, that's really cool to, to kind of get the curtain pulled back. So, yeah, you know, in the current uh, pop culture moment with James Holzhauer, I can you sure. talk a little bit what your strategy was? Because, you know, a lot has been made about his strategy. Yeah, I didn't have as much of the game theory approach as a lot of folks do. Um, and, you know, I didn't necessarily study wagering as much as I should have, I would say. I would, if somebody else, whenever I hear from somebody who is going to be on the show, I tell them that they need to. Uh, there's a couple of sites and, and resources you can look at for best practices for wagering and stuff. What they tell you when you are briefed on how to play the game and the rules is that the game is designed to be played from the top down, that you should start at the top of each category because there may be information in an earlier clue that will help you solve a later one. And I'm a pretty big rule follower, so that's kind of what I try to do. And I would just try to get as many as I could in each category that I was confident about. So like, I think in my fifth or sixth game, there was a category on college football stadiums. And that's where I started, and I got I got all I got all of them but one. In my which, first game, there was a which one did you miss? Movie. Um, I knew it. Uh, I it just one of the other players got in. Um, it was something like this team plays in a stadium called Death Valley in South Carolina. Oh. Um, yeah, and I knew it, but uh, one of the other players just slightly edged me out. So yeah, I didn't hunt for the daily doubles as much as I probably should have. And um, in fact, the game I ended up losing, I was close to a lock and 
one of the other players got a daily double that I absolutely should have been looking for. And so, uh, you know, ton of credit to her for playing a, a really smart heads up game. Um, you know, I, my, my goal was because you lose points for when you guess, I just tried to focus on what I was going to know and get as many right as possible and not guess on anything unless I was way out in front. Um, so, you know, I kind of tried to play very similar to, uh, to Georgia football, like I make, you know, focus on your strengths and make the other, make the other team make the mistakes. So that was kind of my, my strategy, um, going into it. So, uh, what was your favorite category while you were on Jeopardy? Um, the college football stadium one was kind of custom made for me. I got, uh, another category on British history and that's what my doctoral dissertation is about. And so that was a really nice, a really nice one for me. My favorite clue that I got the whole time, um, was in a category about Mensa members. And, um, the clue was this man who invented the geodesic dome was the president of Mensa for some time, and it uh, was the inventor Buckminster Fuck Fuller. Buckminster Fuller. That's one of my favorite yeah. go-to trivia. Like, that question, yeah. you will win so many trivia games on that. That is a favorite of Trivia Callers and Trivial Pursuit and every other trivia game in the world. Yeah, which is why I liked it so much. And uh, that, you know, Because I was like, I definitely would not have learned that through anything other than doing bar trivia. Yeah. No, exactly right. It, it, I bet it comes up in bar trivia once a year, and every other yeah, every place is every place is red. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you know, and also thinking about it, uh, the interesting part uh, during and we talk about James Holzhauer's run, you know, it came out that Alice Trebek is extraordinarily ill. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit because you and I have talked offline about Alex and just how how he approaches the game and the players? Can you talk a little bit about that? I was invited back for a tournament um, this year. The, it was the first ever Jeopardy All-Stars tournament, and um, it was a team-based format. They had never done anything like it before. And you were Team and Julia. I was Team Julia. Um, very, very pleased to be on Team Julia, although one of my teammates is a uh, South Carolina fan, so we had a bit of a dispute about that. But we were out there in January to tape those shows, and at the after party, the, the thing about um, – about like when you go out to tape, a lot of people ask me, one of the, the questions I get the most is what is Alex Trebek like? And I always say he's very nice. He's very professional. He's very, very good at what he does. He makes it look very easy and it's not at all easy because he has to figure out, you know, because they're not going in any order, he's got a sheet with the clues in front of him. He has to listen to the contestant, pick the clue, read it, see who rings in. Um, they the, One of the stories they tell on the set is that as an April Fool's prank one year, he and Pat Sajak switched, and he hosted Wheel, and Sajak hosted Jeopardy. And after the game that Pat Sajak hosted, he said, I'm never doing this again. It's too hard. So he's very, very good at his job and very, very gracious. Um, and especially when we were at the after party after the All-Stars tournament, he was really nice to everybody. He came out and stayed for the whole party. He gave a really wonderful little speech and talked about how nice it was to see everyone again. He you know, went around and shook everybody's hand and was remarkably gracious. And it was shortly after, I think like the week after our, our All-Stars tournament aired, they announced that he um, had stage four pancreatic cancer and we were all shocked and we got, to, you know, we heard from the show and they said we had, we had hoped that we would be able to tell you beforehand, but, it, you know, circumstances kind of 
dictated that this is the way that it had to come out, but please let us know, you know, if you're going to send anything, um, any well wishes, please let us know so that we can have a lookout so that we can be sure that we give them to him immediately. And I, he has read every piece of mail that he has received from all of the fans, but we all got together and we put together a book. Um, we each decorate, each of the all-stars decorated a page and, um, put down some well wishes and some memories and we sent it in. And one of the contestants, um, Pam, uh, who lives in L.A., collected everything and put it all together for us and, and then delivered it to one of the tapings. So, And the news has been really good. They said that he's close to remission. The tumors have all shrunk by at least 50%. So um, it seems like he's got a, a lot of fight in him, and he's, he's doing really well. It's impossible to imagine the show without him. I may have mentioned this earlier, but when you're on the show the first time, you don't get to meet him before the show. You meet him when he comes out to host your episode because he knows what's in the games. He's, he's got been there that morning and gone over with the writing staff all of the material, and you're not allowed to have any contact with somebody who might know the answers. So if you're only on one or two episodes, you don't get to spend a ton of time with him. And one of the nice things about this experience has been I've gotten to, to spend a little bit more time with him and get uh, a bit of a glimpse into really, I mean, how remarkable it is that he is able to do such a good job at this and has done it so well for so long. Um, yeah, and I, I, every, I'm sure everyone in the country is wishing him well. So it's it's been good news so far. And, and that's great to hear. Um, yeah, I think Jeopardy is one of the few things that was like a cultural or maybe a, fam, a familial touchstone when I was a child that's now for my kids because we watch Jeopardy together because we all, I think really because I like it, but I, they're all, kind of, <laughs> they kind of enjoy it and enjoy the gameship and thankfully they enjoy trivia games as well. So I'm glad to hear that about about Alex Trebek. Um, so let's switch a little bit to Georgia football. Now you, as a professed college football fan, did you had you ever been to a Georgia game before you started the PhD program? Yes, I was in Athens for the blackout game in 2007, although I ended up watching it downtown because I couldn't get a ticket. Um, and the first game I went to was the Auburn game in 2009. Um, I think it was like 31-24 was the final. It was the night that Bakari Rambo got hurt. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, um, so that was the first one that I ever went to. Um and then uh, I would go to one a year after that. So I went to um, – I've always gone uh, – every year I, since 2010, I've been at the Tech game when it's in Athens. So I had been to three or four. I went to a Vanderbilt game. No, I went to two Vanderbilt games uh, in 2010-2012. So I had been to a few, um, and my sister would always uh, help me sneak into the student section. So I've seen them from other places, but that's really, like – the first two or three that I saw were from the student section and it was like night and day after having gone to a Vanderbilt game where everybody is just kind of like, you know, chatting and not really paying attention to what's going on to being in a, an environment where it's like, you know, completely full on full throated sport in the entire time. Yeah. So you started at UGA in what year? 2013. So it was the, uh, the year that Aaron Murray's last year when he ended up carrying his ACL against Kentucky, it was the year that everybody got hurt. That yeah. really missed yeah. like half the season with the ankle injury. Yeah. Marshall tore his ACL, Scott Wesley, but it was also the LSU year, which is still my favorite game I've ever been to. Yeah, that was that, that game. It's funny how that year, when you look at it from a hole, you're like, Oh my 
gosh, it's just like we're like, like, like you know, Sisyphus, Sisyphus here. We're just pushing the same rock up the hill. But then yeah. you have the bright moments like LSU. And it's so interesting as a Georgia fan how, at least for me, I'm able to divorce the really cool moments from the season. And for that matter, able to look at seasons. I, I mean, I just have a different approach. I, you know, I, I think about... A lot of people still want to hit, uh, for example, in the disappointment of the national championship game in 2017. I, I will say this, mm-hmm. and until we win a national championship, 2017 has been my favorite football season ever. Um, and, yeah. and, and the reason is, it's like, you know, I, I got to go to the Rose Bowl. I saw <laughs> two of the three most exciting college football games of the season in person. I got to go to Notre Dame. Um, I, I saw Georgia win an SEC championship um, again in person and also – you know, make Auburn look silly doing it. Um, yeah, does that the national championship game suck? Of course it sucked. But we, you know, we played the national championship game. And, and for a fan base that had been saying since 2002 that their rightful place is in that game, I don't like losing the game, but, you know, it's still, it, it remains my favorite football season. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the, all of the preseason preview stuff I had read, you know, said – you generally see the most improvement for a coach between year one and two, but we don't think Georgia's ready to take the next step. With the exception of the Auburn game where they kind of came out flat, every game that year, you know, was a complete, like, barn burner where either Georgia is blowing somebody out of the water or it's a thrilling, you know, right down to the wire, like the Notre Dame game and the the Rose Bowl, which are, yeah, two of the best college football games of the past decade. I'm a little biased, but still, like, it's rich people problems at this point, which is kind of a, a new place to be to the Georgia fan. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. You know, there's always like, that's the nice thing about being a Georgia fan is you're, you know, you're not really ever like, I know it's been kind of a frustrating couple of decades where there's been a couple of close calls, like the 2002 team, which is um, a face plant of Florida away from playing for the national title. But um, you're also avoiding full on meltdown disaster, you know, like, Auburn won a national championship, but in 2012, they were they won, what, three games? Um, you know, Tennessee has been mired. They won the 98 national championship, but they've been kind of mired in a real, like, alternating between mediocre and bad for the better part of the last decade. So you avoid that full-on disaster, and you have, you know, even in a season that's disappointing like 2013, you have moments like the LSU game that are, like, completely fantastic experience as a fan. Yeah, and considering I was in college from 86, or college and law school from 86 to 93, and remained a fan, you know, during the late 90s, and I, I yeah. saw an awful lot of bad football, and I, look, I'm not, I don't want to be complacent as simply being 10 and 2. I get where people come from with that, but let me tell you something, I, I'd rather be 10 and 2 every year, because frankly, you're in the conversation, and not get there, than be... You know, nine and three, and then four and seven or eight. The improvement in consistency over from from 2000 to uh, the end of the Rick era is, I, I, I think, in time, we'll look back at the Rick era and be like, you know, all the things that happened under Kirby Smart probably would not have happened if they're not for Mark Rick. And you know, I realize that's a minority, both a minority opinion and probably not very popular opinion. It is rare for someone. To, to come into a program and go to the very top of the game unless there's already the structures in place 
you know, the bones in place to put the structures in place at least to uh, mm-hmm. reach that. And I, I think that happened under under Mark Rick. Now, I also will 100% agree that it's likely he would never gotten there without a couple of ridiculous breaks. I mean, see the Gene Chizik rule. Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I did just compare Mark Rick to Gene Chizik in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Gene Chizik has a ring, but he also, um, you know, is a, a little bit of a punchline. Um Yes. Although he's apparently um, a lovely person and also really, really, I think he's actually really good as a football analyst. So um, I'm, I'm glad he's, I think we're all smarter for him, him being a football analyst. So, so what are your favorite Georgia football memories? That 13 game you talked about, the LSU game. Yeah, the LSU game. And, and especially like, uh, I remember um, in that game, uh, the last Georgia touchdown when, Aaron Murray hit Scott Wesley going down the sideline, um, and I turned to the person I was at the game with and said, they left too much time on the clock. I'm really worried because Mettenberger had been kind of on on a roll, and then the defense really stepped up when he missed that last target, and the place erupted. You, you could probably hear it from Noonan. That was a really great moment. Um, the first game in 2014, the Clemson game, it was kind of neck and neck in the first half, and then Georgia came out on fire in the second half, and uh, mopped the floor with them um, at the tailgate, uh, at my family's tailgate before that game. Um, after uh, a, a couple of bourbon cocktails, I prognosticated that Gurley would rush for 100 or would rush for 200 yards and four touchdowns, and I was almost exactly right. He rushed for 198 and four touchdowns, um, 293 all-purpose. So that game was really exciting, and. I was happy about my my prognostication abilities. Um, recently, the uh, the end of the Notre Dame game, when Wimbush fumbled, um, my wife and I watched that in uh, we were living in Texas at the time, and I it started jumping up and down and screaming, and I think our neighbors banged on the um, the wall to tell us to keep it down, um, and then the Rose Bowl as well. When the when Oklahoma missed the field goal, I was feeling pretty good. And then when Michelle caught the edge, and it was obvious that he was completely, you know, he was in the end zone um, again. Like I, I was at my in-laws' house, and I nearly knocked their china cabinet over. So those have been some of the um, the big highlights. I feel like uh, also the the entirety of the forty-one to nothing Tennessee game. Tennessee is my least favorite of the rivals. Well, and that's um, because that's where you're from, right? You're from Rio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, yeah. So I, I tend to encounter a lot of Tennessee fans, and, and I have some of them in my family tree. And so it's always nice to win that game because it minimizes the amount of crap I have to hear at Thanksgiving about Tennessee. And especially after the two-year the two year losing streak to them, it was really nice to come out and finally kind of like exercise that demon. Yeah, I'm with you there. It's, it's funny how some of those games stand out. I was not at the 1997 Florida game. But, uh, you know, every time, even though we feel like it feels like the, the tenor of the Georgia-Florida um, rivalry has changed, every time we won down there, it just felt, uh, I mean, I mean, orgasmic is not, is almost too big of a word, but maybe not, <laughs> just because it was like such an amazing feeling after having gone down there so many times and feeling like we're getting our teeth kicked in. So quick thoughts on 2019. I'm not asking for predictions, but what do you think? I'm pretty sure it was Seth Emerson, so I can fill in for Will here and recommend Seth Emerson, who said in the last before 2018 said the 2018 Georgia team was going to be really good and it was going to be the worst that they were for a while. So I feel like 
there's a lot of talent and a lot of depth. Um, some of the areas that other people seem concerned about, I'm, I don't feel as worried about. I'm not as worried about the defense as, um, as I feel like some of the preseason stuff that I read is, just because I know that's Kirby's focus, and I, he had been at Alabama long enough to understand. I know it's going to, you know, Mel Tucker was doing a great job, and having having landing in his place, there will be some adjustments to be made. But I'm sure that Kirby, you know, knows how to plan for succession. I think the offensive line is probably the best offensive line in the country, and returns a ton of starts and a ton of depth, and that means that the run game is going to be lights out. Um, you know, you've got Swift coming back, who's a legitimate preseason Heisman contender. You've got Cook, who's had a year in the weight room um, and looked really good every time he touched the ball last year. Arian, who was the only, the only guy who got off the bus in New Orleans, so I feel pretty good about him showing up for um, his last season. And then White, who at this point seems like, you know, even if he's only getting five to ten carries a game, it's probably going to be a really nice change of pace. So um, that, that being said, like the one position group that has the most concern, especially in light of Holloman's dismissal, is the receivers. Um, now, I mean, like you have to kick Holloman off. That's unacceptable, and there's no, you know, there's no world in which, like, that was absolutely the right decision, and I think that it was the Kirby had no choice. That's pretty clear. Um, but the receivers, uh, I, I think I saw an article last night that said, like, of the returning receivers, Georgia, like, Georgia's returning receivers caught 17 passes for about 300 yards and two touchdowns last year. So that group, you know, it's going to be tough to, to gauge preseason how they're going to do because there's so many question marks. So many of them haven't played before. But, I mean, Pickens is supposed to be a star. Robertson has now been had a year to learn the scheme, and hopefully has gotten his, his blocking ability to the point where he's ready to start. You have Eli Wolf, the transfer from Tennessee, who I think is going to be hopefully able to step in and kind of fill in where Nauta was. You know, I also feel like if you're Georgia and if you're a Georgia fan, the position that you kind of can be the, the most worried about is receivers because Georgia has never really been a pass first offense and what always what we're going to try to do is you know impose our will grind you down run the ball and that running threat is going to mean that um you know i think a lot of teams like their defensive plan is going to be to try to stack the box and stop the run um which means that there's a ton of opportunity for some of the younger players to uh, to show up that you know the the 2012 game um sec championship game where amari cooper kind of took over at the end and Alabama eked out a win over Georgia. He was a freshman. And so I think, you know, a guy like Pickens has all the ability in the world and a real chance to kind of step up and, and become a hero, um, especially if he and Fromm can get it together. And this is where it helps to have a two-year veteran starter at quarterback, you know, somebody who's not going to panic, somebody who's really cool under pressure. Um, you know, the, the criticism of him is that he's a game manager, but I think that's exactly what you want with kind of a, an inexperienced receiving core, especially to start the year out. And it's also nice that we get we, – I mean, we open with a conference game at Vanderbilt, but that's, that's generally not one that you're as worried about. You've got three weeks to kind of sharpen up to get ready for Notre Dame in the first 
really big test of the season. So um, I'm always bullish on Georgia. I always, you know, my prediction is always that Georgia is going to win the national championship over Ohio State, 42 to 17. The only thing I would suggest about that this year is that I don't think Ohio State's going to make it because they have a first-year head coach. I would be surprised if Georgia is not in the playoffs. They'll definitely be in the playoff hunt. Um, I don't see an SEC team that is ready to take, you know, to come up to Georgia's level. I think it's Alabama and Georgia in Atlanta, and then probably again in the postseason. Um, it kind of depends on what Clemson does, but that's um, as, as exactly how the playoffs will shake out. But I would be surprised if Georgia is not in the playoff, just based on how much talent they're returning and the fact that um, that there's a ton of of veteran leadership on both sides of the ball. So loosely, that would be my prediction, but I think there's a ton of reason to be optimistic. And, and it's a, you know, I feel like in years past, you know, like the late Rick years, it was always like, well, if we can catch a break here and if we can get by Florida, maybe we'll be in the hunt going down the stretch. But, you know, now I think it's, it's really Georgia's game to lose in a lot of ways. And that's a, a new feeling and a, well, I have one last question. Yeah. What do you miss most about living in Athens? Oh, boy. Uh, everything. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, easiest, the easiest question, or the easiest answer is that they don't really, they don't play Georgia games anywhere else. Um, and I miss the, that, you know, for, for six Saturdays out of the year, you know exactly what you're doing all day. For the for six more Saturdays out of the year, you you know that, um, you're not going to be uh, out by the stadium, but you'll be watching the game somewhere. Um, I also really miss, um, like, as a, a, a shout-out to another, like, really great source that helped me prepare for Jeopardy. Um, there's a trivia company in Athens called Full Contact Trivia, and it is the best trivia I've ever played. So um, uh, Bobby, uh, there, Bobby Nettles, the guy who runs the company, is the best host I've ever had, and if you can, if you're interested in bar trivia at all, I highly recommend you check out uh, his show. Not safe for work, um, but uh, but definitely um, another thing that I really miss. There's a lot of trivia up here in Chicago, but it's not quite the same. So yeah, those those two things um, really in in particular. But Athens is just like there's nowhere else like it. You know, I've lived in a couple of other college towns and. And I've enjoyed them, but yeah, Athens is, is kind of a, a, a one-of-a-kind place, and there's nowhere else that, that feels like there. Um, and uh, maybe, you know, uh, hopefully one day I'll, I'll get to return and, and uh, spend some more time there. Well, Seth, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. Um, look forward to seeing you the fall, and go dogs. Go dogs. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series on the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. You can find us at iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Google Podcast, or wherever you download your podcast. Do me a favor and rate and review if you get a chance. We'd love the chance to read your review on the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at WSLS Podcast and on the web at www.wslspodcast.com. Scott is soft rolling out some new merch, so go to the shop to check that out on our website. On behalf of Scott and Will, we want to thank Seth for taking the time to appear on the Spotlight Series. You can follow him at Seth Wish, S-E-T-H-W-I-S-H. He is the associate editor of Music Inc. magazine and is an exuberant in person as he appears on his Twitter bio. 
Scott and Will and I will be back after the 4th of July holiday with a new podcast leading up to Season 5. Go dogs. Go dogs.